This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Did it go? Yeah. I clicked it. Was it rolling? Can you tell? <laughs> yeah? Okay. All right. Okay. How are we doing? So um, I, I, uh, I got off the... Uh, I got off the stage over there because honestly I like sitting if you get to sit then I should get to sit oh this thing's off to begin with so there's no reason to have to even use that good what are we doing this week so we have our three part series um, and this is the part three of three now if movies have taught us anything it's that the third anything is always terrible it's just the way it always goes. Um, uh, the third Hangover movie, uh, the, uh, the, the third of anything, the, every third Superman or Spider-Man. No, hold on one second, let me take that back. The third Superman, the Misa of Christopher Reeve was very good. So that, so that was the thing. But maybe, maybe in the 80s, the thirds were bad. Because Rocky III was also fantastic with B.A. Baracus with Mr. T. Um, okay, so in recent years... The third of something is always terrible. So this is the third class of a series, and so one would be like, it has to be absolutely horrible, this class. So anything better than absolute horrible, and I'm going to be proud of myself. So thank you. Um, what are we doing? So we saw, we saw these past few weeks, different ideas. Got a little emotional last week. Um, I apologize for that. And now... Now we're here. Now we're finally at the point where um, keeping it real, uh, the name of the series, uh, trying to maybe perhaps kick up some emotion, kick up some reality for our Jewish soul, has now come to the climax of the series. And a perfect parasha to have a climax in, because this week's parasha is certainly one of my favorites. Parashat Toledot is, um, it's way too big. This is just the biggest parashat. It's just the biggest one ever. Because there are certain parashiot that people think that they know, and they know nothing of it. Then there are other parashiot that people know that they don't know, and then they just don't care about it. This is the one that everyone feels that they know, that they got. But in truth, there are so many layers to this parashat. There are so many brilliant ideas that really have to be worked through. So let's, uh, let's get this started. I want to do a shout out, though. Um, there is somebody, one of, uh, one of the most impressive people I think that I've ever met. Um, traveled the world uh, with Rabbi Wines, uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine uh, would take different trips around the world, and this was one of the people who helped set up the trips and to make things happen. Um, has heard so many classes throughout, and I just recently heard that she actually listens to all these classes over here. So I would like to uh, send a shout out to uh, to Feige Gilbert, Gavalt. That uh, no, I'm, I'm very so uh, I'm so happy that you're listening. And to be honest with you, if you're listening to this idiot after you listen to Rabbi Beryl Wine, so then I like you. Hope Michelle comes really soon to get the good speakers back. <laughs> so that's what I hope. Okay, that's an amen. No, nobody, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, Yaakov and Esav. Yaakov and Esav. <sighs> These two brothers. What was Hashem thinking? <laughs> what was Hashem thinking, honestly? You know, I mean, it had to have been that up in Shemayim, Hashem turned to the Malachim right before and Hashem said, all right, Get ready for this, because this is about to get crazy. Like, crazier than Abraham? Oh, yeah. Crazier than Yitzhak? Oh, you have no idea what's going to happen. And Hashem goes, and in this week's parasha, how it starts out, that we have the toldot of Yitzhak ben Abraham. Yitzhak is 40 years old. He marries Rivka, and uh, they, they, they can't have kids. He prays, she prays. I don't think we're going to get into that aspect tonight of, of what happened over there. But then, finally, she becomes pregnant. So, you know what, I'm, I, I have to point this out. There was such a chidush that was set at my house last night. Um, Baruch Hashem, I have different classes and different people. So there was a group at my house last night of, I guess you can say, guys who, have very, who had very diff- difficult lives, who have gone through very 
difficult trials and tribulations, and now, Baruch Hashem, they're back on the path, and they just want to grow. And there's a famous question, and you're going to love this. There's a famous question, which is that it says, Yitzchak is praying, and Rivka is praying, and who's the one who gets answered? Yitzchak. It's Vayetarlo. Very good. The women always have the answers. The men are always just like, get to your point. Why, why are you even asking us? We're not the ones getting uh, any paid in this. So, I agree. So, Vayetarlo. He got answered. She did not. Why? So, Rashi says, a very interesting answer. Rashi says, You cannot compare Tfilatan, the Tfilat, Sadiq ben Sadiq, the Tfilatan, Shel Sadiq ben Rasha. That because he's a Sadiq ben Sadiq, therefore he gets answered before she does. And there's a very famous question. And the famous question is, shouldn't it be just the opposite? Shouldn't it be that because she's a Sadiq ben Rasha, Bat Rasha, that she had Bituel, a terrible person, Lavan? the most evil, one of the most evil people to ever live as a brother. She came from such hardships, and yet she chose God. Shouldn't it be that her tefillah should be gathered in first? Should be accepted first? Over Yitzhak, who, let's face it, his father is Avraham. You know, of course he's a tzaddik. Your father's Avraham Avinu. So there's an answer which I'm not going to get into tonight, the answer that I like to give, but he, this guy had such a beautiful answer. Such a good answer. He looked at me and he said, Rabbi, of course Yitzchak got answered and she didn't. And I said, why? He said it with such conviction. I said, why? He said, because there's a famous idea that when somebody is sick, so if you pray for yourself, you may get answered, may not get answered. So there's a famous thing. If you're, if you're, if let's say you have pneumonia and somebody else has pneumonia. So you should say to that person, I'll pray for you and you pray for me. Instead of praying for yourself, of course you're meant to pray for yourself, but it's more potent when you pray for somebody else, then it's going to come and help you and help that person as well. But it's stronger when you pray for somebody else. And Zakt Er, over here, she was only praying for herself. Whereas Yitzchak was praying for her. And because Yitzchak was not praying for himself, he was praying for her, therefore it would make sense that his tefillah had more potency. Which is a fascinating, I don't think I chopped how brilliant. Jake, no, it's a good, in like a hundred years, I, I will never see that diok inside. You can go this Rashi a hundred times. I liked it, nobody else does, I could care less. So, what happens after that? She finds out, Ulo'om Milo'om, Ya'amat, she has these great nations that are inside her. Her stomach is going crazy. Her stomach is absolutely, she's like, this can't be, this is not normal. She has Yaakov Avinu. Every single time they walk by the Bet Midrash of Shem Ever, what happens to her? We all know this story. Yaakov Avinu is pushing to get out of her. Not just pushing. He was clawing away at the walls of her uterus. Right? I mean, he was just, just trying, it was like, that opening scene in Aliens, when just, she's like, oh good God, what is happening? And literally pushing out of her. And then, Aesop, the only reason why, Mepharshim tells us, the only reason why he didn't get out is because Aesop pulled him back. It's like, let go of me, hellboy porcupine thing. And he just pulled him back. And then Aesop was like, huh? And then he sees an Avodazara house. And Aesop said, must go out and bow down to and he starts and she's like oh no here we go again and then he starts to push out of her and then what happens Yaakov pulls him back in and, 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 and she goes up to Shem Ve'ever and she says to Shem Ve'ever what is this this is not normal and Shem Ve'ever says look you know it's, it's birth pains it's what happened. and she says oh it's birth pains and then she shows like it's just happening it's like this is not I'm like whoa what is that that is not normal that shouldn't be happening so she said, what is this? And so they went and they saw. Two shnei goim bevitnech. You've got two goim, two nations, going on bevitnech, going on inside your stomach. So it comes time and she gives birth. The first one comes out, completely red, covered in hair. And we call him Esav. They call him Yaakov. And Yitzhak was 60 at the time that they were birthed. You can spend years on this Pasuk. Days, 
not ours. There is so much going on over here. He came out covered in hair. I mean, what was this thing? You know, what did, why say or why did God of all things decide to cover him in hair? What was the concept behind that? There's brilliance. And it's by no, it's by no coincidence that he ends up on Har Seir. He ends up getting the Mount Seir, the, the mountain called Seir, the mountain called hair, uh, goat. <sighs> so much brilliance here. And then Yaakov comes out and he's grabbing at the Ekev of Esau. There's Megala Mukot that tells us that really his name was supposed to be Asui, not Esav, Ayin, Sin, Vav. It was supposed to be Asui, Ayin, Sin, Vav, Yud. He was supposed to have, because Asui means completed, full. His name was supposed to be Asui, completely full, made. And instead, somehow or other, he came out Esav. Why did he come out Esav? Because, well, let's see, Yaakov grabbed onto the Akev. Yaakov's name was supposed to be Akev, was supposed to be healed. But instead, he grabbed at the Yud of Esav. He grabbed away the Yud, and he added it to his name, and he turned his name into Yaakov. Says Megale Amokot, and it's Pashut, it's right there in the Pasuk. Vachreken, Yatsa Achiv, Viyado, Ochezet, Ba'ekev Esav. Viyado, says the Megala Mokot, is the Yado is the Yud. Just switch around. Viyud, Yud Vav Dalad. Instead of Yud Dalad Vav, Viyud Ochezet Ba'ekev Esav. He grabbed onto the Yud that was over there. What the heck is going on? <laughs> He's grabbing letters off of Esav. What is happening over here? Who are these two crazy brothers? What was God thinking? All right, so. We cannot be mekayem, the mitzvah of toldot, if we don't learn this maharal. I learn it every single year with my students, and, and it's something that I must share with everybody here. It's one of the most fabulous maharals, um, at least in my mind. That, uh, I mean, it's not for me to judge uh, the different maharals, but at least this one speaks very close to my heart. The maharal is going on, really the first words in the parasha, that it tells us, these are the toldot of Yitzhak ben Avraham. Avraham gave birth to Yitzhak. So Rashi tells us, Who are the toldot of Yitzhak? So Yaakov says, uh, So Rashi says, Oh yeah, no, it's Yaakov and Esav. Yeah. Thank you, Rashi. Didn't have to tell us. <laughs> it was. Was Rashi afraid we weren't going to read the next Pasuk where it says, and he gave birth to Yaakov and Esau? <laughs> so Rashi felt the need. Literally, it says, and Rashi jumps in. Oh no, I, he's talking about Yaakov and Esau. Okay. We know that it's going to be, it's going to be the next Pasuk. I, Rashi never writes anything that is extra, and certainly he's not writing to us the obvious that we know. Rashi felt we're going to miss something so important that Rashi felt the need to have to tell us, oh, the children that he's going to have? Oh, it's going to be Yaakov and Esav. What is he, like that guy you're watching a movie with that spoils? Oh, he's Kaiser Soze, right? I mean, he's going to go and spoil... uh, (laughs) No one is getting references anymore. The usual suspects. Okay. I'm going to take a minute for all of you to really ponder your own lives uh, if you haven't seen some of the most important movies. Okay, good. Uh, We're past the pondering stage. So, why is Rashid telling us Yaakov and Esav? Listen to this maral. So the maral is bothered. Why is Rashid telling us? Kolomar. It is connected to the fact these toledot are Yaakov and Esav. This is all coming to tell us how they were born. The pisukim to follow, the verses to follow, are coming to tell us how they were born, but already in her womb, they were people. They were already born, although they weren't born. And what the Maral says. <laughs> so good. What does that mean? 
Every time in the Torah, every time in the Torah that it says somebody had kids, first you have the kids, and then you say these are his kids. It's the way it goes. It would be weird if you showed up to like a barbecue. And you're meeting people. Hi, yeah, this is my friend uh, Stam, and that's his wife Janet. And you're meeting people, and he's like, "Oh, yeah, hey, yeah, no, this is my friend David. Hi, David. Hi." Um, David's like, "Oh, let me introduce you to my wife Laura." Hey, hey. And those are my kids. You're like, "Sorry, what?" Because he's not pointing anywhere. He's like, yeah, "No, they're in. They're in my wife's belly." Sorry, couldn't quite catch them. And yet, no, I have two kids, and they're already in our. Um, that's little Samuel, and next to him is little Eric. Hey, Samuel, how's it going? He's really smart, he's a little bit shy. And he starts talking about the children that are living inside his wife's womb. That would be weird. Well, the Torah did that in this week's parasha. The Torah starts to tell you, Oh, um, hey everybody, these are Yitzhak's kids. Okay. Where? Oh, they're in Rivka's womb. Oh, no, actually they're not. They haven't even been conceived. It's just a weird way to go about explaining things. You can spend so much time with these so just to figure out. Says the Maral, you want to know why the Torah did it this way? Because the Torah is teaching you that they were already considered people before they came into the light of day. Before they were born, before they came physically out of their mother, they were already considered people inside her womb. How is that possible? Says the Maral. Right away, when they were still inside Rifka's stomach, Raul Lekroto Tam told you can already call them offspring. Because Yaakov was considered a tzadik kamor before he was born. Yaakov was considered a full-on tzaddik before he was born. And Eitzav was considered a full-on rasha before he was born. You know, <laughs> we've all been brought up with, with, with the story, with the story that I told you. They walk by the Bet Knesset, the Bet Midrash, and Yaakov is fighting to get out. And then Eitzav is fighting to get out by the Avodah Zarah. And that's it. That's all we do. When we're growing up with kids, our only concern with that story is one thing. Who is getting the red crayon in first grade to be able to completely color Esau from head to toe? It, it's, he's, one of those, he's one of those Bible figures you can't wait because you can't get it wrong. You're just like, woo! It's what Israeli kids call kush kush <laughs> You can just kush kush up the whole Esau and that's it. And you accept that story without ever questioning it. Do you understand the ramifications and the trouble that this gets us into? If Yaakov is a tzaddik gamor mirechem, if Yaakov is kodesh mirechem, what that means, he's holy from inside his mother's womb, tzaddik gamor, the way the Tanya translates tzaddik gamor is, he has no yitzhar harat, it's defeated, it's gone. But guys, if Yaakov Avinu has no, no yitzhar harat, and all he is is kulo tov. All Yaakov Avinu is is just one big ball of tzaddik. So then, should he get any reward for all the good that he does? He wasn't challenged. If he had no challenge, if he had no yetzer hara, then why in the world would we ever, would God ever give him any reward? If you had a laptop, you open it up and you put in a DVD to go play a movie. The laptop starts to play the movie. Do you ever pat it on the back and say, good laptop, good, woo everybody, laptop, good for you, good for you. You don't do that. Why don't you do that? Because it's programmed to work. It's programmed to play the DVD. If it wouldn't work, you'd get upset at it. Yaakov Avinu, if he was tzaddik in Kadosh Mirechem, if he was a tzaddik from even before he was born, he shouldn't get any reward. And now, in my mind, even more troubling... Esav. Esav was completely rasha, completely evil. If Esav is completely evil, so then, can he get any punishment? Can you punish the guy for anything that he's doing? He's a psychopath. 
in the world? He has no uh, conception within his mind of human life or value for anything because the way he was made was completely evil. How can we blame either of them for anything? How can we give reward to Yaakov? How can we give punishment to Esav? None of them have free will. And we always thought that that was a cute little story. And now we see the ramifications of such an incredible tale. So, the way Riff Berkowitz explained it to us, the way he taught it to us, really based on um, different writings, Mikhtav Melio being one of them, what was the purpose? What was the purpose of Yaakov and Esav? Yaakov, they say, was the Gilgul of Adam. Yaakov came back into this world to go and to fix whatever it was that Adam had broke. And the same way that Adam was created with the Yetzer Hara outside of him in the form of a snake, similarly, we're going to find the Yaakov Avinu, being the reincarnation of Adam, will be born the same exact way, with his Yetzer Hara outside of him in the form of Esav. Yaakov and Esav were twins. You couldn't tell the difference between them until they turned 13. Yaakov and Esav were supposed to be together forever. The perfect brothers complementing each other. Going on for eternity together, each one doing his tafkid, each one reaching his purpose, each one being mitaken, the entire world together. How? Esav, his job was, he was supposed to be the Yetzer Hara, the challenge for Yaakov. He was supposed to push Yaakov. He was supposed to make Yaakov's life terrible. He was supposed to hurt him and pain him and keep on chastising him, kick him when he's down and then kick him even harder. Why? So that Yaakov would be challenged and so that Yaakov can overcome those challenges and Yaakov can reach his greatness. Esav was the trainer, Yaakov was the fighter. You remember in all the Rocky movies, Mickey, come on, Rocco, get up! I didn't hear no bell! Remember, I just, just, just pushing him and pushing him, and no matter what, what's the matter, you can't catch a little chicken, Rocco! Just, just pushing him and pushing him. Sylvester Stallone, if, but if you ever have like a down moment and you're feeling sad and you need a good laugh, take out Rocky Three. Go YouTube, Sylvester Stallone saying Kaddish. In Rocky 3, when Mickey finally dies, yeah, spoiler alert, Mickey dies. So when he dies in Rocky 3, Sylvester Stallone says Kaddish for him. It's perfect. It is one of the funniest things. Nothing against Sylvester Stallone. I realize I'm in Hollywood now. He can show up, he can show up to my door. I used to be safe in Israel. He's like, Sylvester Stallone is like 86 years old, and he's more buff and built than I will ever be in five lives. He can, he can absolutely murder my face. I, I know that. You're making fun of my Kaddish. <laughs> People have to say Kaddish for you in a minute. <laughs> and you got a little drool over there, Sly. Okay. So, Lamaisa, where are we? Oh, yeah. So, Mickey, being the best trainer ever, all he did was constantly push and push his fighter, push him and push him and not let him up, never let him stop. Do more, go harder, go stronger. You have to, you can do this more. He's demanding of him greatness. Esav was din, Esav was judgment. Esav was supposed to be the one to judge Yaakov constantly and say, this isn't good enough, you can do better. You're Ishtam, you're the perfect man. You're Yoshevo Alim, you're learning from all the greats, from Shem Ve'ever, according to the Zohar, that's sitting in the tents of Avram and Yitzhak. You're supposed to be amazing, your children are supposed to be the Am Kadosh. Your children are supposed to be the ones of Yisrael, Yashar Kel, on the line with God Almighty. That's who you're supposed to be? I don't see see that? Give me 10 more push-ups. I don't see that. Give me 10 more daf gemara. I don't see that. No, you can't go to sleep tonight until you memorize all those mishnayot. You're supposed to be great and I will make you great or you will die trying. That was supposed to be Esau. The greatest trainer of all times. And by the way, the way it was supposed to look, the way that the world was supposed to look like and perfection was, all of Yaakov's kids were going to be the kohanim. Mamlechet Kohanim Vego Kadosh. That was supposed to be all of us. All the Jews. No Yisrael. No, no, no. All of us. Leviim, Kohanim, serving in the Beit HaMikdash. You know who was going to be 
the function of Yisrael? What is the function of Yisrael today? The function of Yisrael in the times of the Beit HaMikdash as well. They supported, they supported Levi by giving Ma'aser, and they supported the Kohanim by giving Teruma. They supported them. Meaning, they told the Kohen, you stay in the Beit HaMikdash, you work, you be holy, and we, the Yisrael, will make the money of this world and we'll support you. In a perfect world, Yaakov was supposed to, all of the Jews were supposed to be Mamlechet Kohanim Vigo Kadosh. We were all supposed to be Kohanim, connected to God. And Esav was going to be the job of Yisrael. Esav was supposed to be the one to support us. He was going to come down from Har Seir, and that's why God put Har Seir right outside. He was going to come down from Har Seir, and he was going to come with all the money, with the paychecks. And he was going to say, how much did you learn? Let me see. Let me see your attendance in Kolel this week, this month. You took off that day and that day. I'm sorry, but I'm going to cut that off. Din, judgment, you get exactly what... And by the way, that's not the way it was supposed to be only. That's the way it's going to be when Mashiach comes. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited for that. But the way the Rambam tells us, Yemot Mashiach is, is that ain't bain, there's no difference bain, and what that means is, is that all of the goyim of the world will know that God is God. And then they're going to say to us, what are you doing being an accountant? What are you doing being a pharmacist, all of LA? They're going to want to know, what, what, what are you doing here? Just imagine it this way. Let's say there was a guy who his child, unfortunately... His, lungs, his child's lungs collapsed. And his child needed to be on a ventilator to live. So we had him on a ventilator. All the electricity went out in the house. Went out in the town. And the generator, as a backup, only has 24 hours. And the father recognizes that my son's lungs are going to completely cave in at the end of these 24 hours. So... Quickly, the father figures out a contraption that he can load up like the belt of a bike somehow to the generator. And if the father just keeps on pedaling and keeps on pedaling, that will generate enough electricity to keep his son alive. After 24 hours, the generator dies, but the father starts pedaling and pedaling. And obviously he's sweating, but he's keeping his dear son alive. If you walk into that house and you see that, are you going to say to the guy, hey, aren't you an accountant? Like, <laughs> What? And he's just, don't you have a job? Shouldn't you go out to the world and work? It's like, what are you my kid, his life depends on this electricity that I'm doing. I'm never going to stop this. Would you ever have the goal or the audacity or the moronacy to walk in there, look at the guy and say to him, hey, you should get off of that bike and go get a job? Or will you say, you look quite parched, here's some water, please drink it, and by the way, I'll help support your family, help support everything, so that you can keep this holy endeavor of keeping your child's life alive and going. The Yisrael, in the times of Mashiach, the Yisrael is going to be recognized as the one who's going to be keeping that world going, keeping the spinning happening the entire time. And then the goyim of the world, they're going to come and say, look, these yidin are keeping the world going. What? They would never demand of us to go do anything else. Instead, they're going to say, let us support you. Let us keep you going, that connection with Hashem. Esau's initial job was to challenge us. Esau's initial job was to absolutely keep us in challenge to make the greatest aspect of us come out. Now, that was Yaakov and Esau. Generally where I go with the speeches, I go into a lot of different Torah aspects and we tie it all together. But for the remaining few minutes of tonight, really what I wanted to explore was something different. I want to talk a little bit about Yaakov and Esav and the concept of free will. Because this is the place to talk about it. Let's see. We said that, did Esav really have a choice? I want to ask you, is Esav the only one who was ever born like this? A Palestinian child who was born 
in Gaza. And he's being told every day of his beautiful first 11 years of his life. He's being told every day. We shouldn't be here. Your grandparents had a house in Jerusalem. Before 1948, we used to have lemon trees in our backyard. It was absolutely wonderful. And those terrible, terrible Israelis, the ones that shoot at us, the ones that keep us down, the ones that absolutely hammer away at our homes all the time, they're to blame. And if we have to, we'll even give ourselves and give our lives, we'll even murder to get that back, to get back our rightful land. I just saw the trailer of a documentary called Fathers and Sons. A friend of mine sent me this link. He said, you have to see this. Somebody had the ability to get into the Syrian jihadist camp. And he was allowed for two years to just sit there and to film a documentary on their upbringing. Fascinating. And inside just a two-minute quick trailer that I saw, you see this beautiful little Muslim child. I think maybe he was six years old or seven years old. And the kid is holding a little baby bird in his hand. And you see the kid is playing with it like the whole time from the scene before. And the kid is smiling to his father. And the father's sitting with him. The father's telling him a bedtime story before the kid goes to sleep at night. And the kid says to his father, you know what I'm going to do with this? I'm going to slit its neck open and then crack it off like you did man yesterday. His father was one of the head jihadists who beheaded one of the reporters for ISIS. And his son said to him with a big smile, I'm going to do the same thing to this bird. Do we blame this kid for growing up without any choice? Does he have choice? I wonder. You know, we're brought up to kill Amalek, right? If Amalek were to walk into this room right now, what would we do? What would we do? So, my theory is that Rabbi Per, uh, my Rosh Hashiva, once told us something along these lines. My theory is Hashem did us a very big tovah. From the times of Purim and onward, the physical manifestation of Amalek was brought into question, and we don't know who he is. And God did that because we, as humans, have lost the veracity of so much passion that we would, for the sake of God, go and end somebody else's life by the mere sight of that person without anything but being told he's Amalek. I don't think we would have the... I don't think we'd have the goal to do it. And so therefore Hashem said that's a mitzvah that they can't do, so He took it away from us. Apparently the para Adam is still able to do that. But I ask you, a kid in Germany, a beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, gorgeous little Aryan boy, nine years old, in the year 1938. He's growing up in Berlin, in a crazy place, to say the least. And he's being told the entire time that finally we're getting rid of the sickness of society, the Jew. He's terrible. And look, they even have proofs. Their heads are shaped differently. Go, go into Yad Vashem. They have the textbooks that the German kids were being taught of measurements of different people's skulls and proving to them without a shadow of a doubt, look, scientifically, the skulls are different. It's got to be. <laughs> it's got to be that they worship the devil or some other madness that was driven into them three squares a day. That by the time that beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryan kid became 12 or 13, when he grew up just a little bit more, 
It made sense to go and to chase every Jew that he saw down and to yell at the scream and the whistle that he was given by all of the German soldiers to blow as loud as he can if you would see a Jew hiding anywhere, to quickly call over the troops, the stormtroopers who can come with the metal heel of their boots and stop out the brains of every single Jew. And then this kid had the joy of watching it. And soon enough, I'll be old enough to get boots heavy enough to join in the stomping. Does this kid have free will? I wonder. So, I'm sure we've all heard of the Milgram experiment. Fascinating. The Milgram experiment. This experiment was actually conducted only a, uh, I think say a year or two after the Eichmann trials. Adolf Eichmann. Um, the one, the, the, the butcher, the killer, who Israel went, and an incredible uh, story how they went and they captured him, and they brought him back to, uh, they brought him back to, uh, to Israel. And after his trial, and after they hung him, they decided, we want to do an experiment. Can you really blame any of the Nazis for what they've done, or were they all just following orders and once there are orders given, your free will is compromised and you're going to follow. And listen to this experiment. They went and they brought, um, they actually hung up signs. If you want, just on Wikipedia, read it up. It's fascinating. They have pictures of the signs that they put up saying, anybody who wants, we're looking to do an experiment, we'll pay you $4 a day. Come, this is the experiment. They told people, you're going to sit by a table with a few buttons. And there's a person in the other room, and that person is hooked up to certain electricity. That person is being taught to obey certain commands or certain things. Every time we tell you, every time there was a, there was a doctor standing next to him with a white coat, every time the doctor tells you, press the button or up the voltage on that person in the other room, you must up the voltage on that person. Okay? Okay. Now, really... The person in the other room was not hooked up to voltage, thankfully. It was just an actor sitting. He couldn't see that person. It was another room, and there was no way to see the person in the other room. So the doctor said to the person, the one sitting at the table with the controls, okay, um, he's not listening to us. We need you to put up the voltage to 10. The voltage to 10? Okay. And then you hear him in the other room go, ow, ah, ah, ah. Okay, put it down, put it down. Okay. And then they say something else to the person. He's not listening. 20. What? 20. Put it up to 20. Are you sure? You must put it up to 20. Ow! Ow! Stop! Oh my God! Stop! Put it down. Now, going to about 50 or 60 is death. They thought, and he had sent out, this Dr. Milgram had sent out a questionnaire to many professors in other universities. He was in Yale University. He sent to other universities asking them, what do you think the outcome will be? And everybody said, what do we think? Once the person is killing, the of course he's not going to listen. Of course he's not going to stop. I forget the percentage. I should have looked it up before, and I apologize that I didn't. But the percentage of people who obeyed and murdered, murdered the person in the other room was a, a, a phenomenally high number because he was being told by a person in a white coat, keep on doing that. He put it up to the point of murder which they wanted to prove and say, perhaps in Nazi Germany, so many of those soldiers followed because they were being instructed by higher-ups and they had no other choice. Fascinating. But now we have to ask the question, where is our free will? If this is the truth, then a kid growing up in Mea Sha'arim, a beautiful little Hasidic kid, with his long peyote and his beautiful green eyes. Growing up in Meisharim, the most religious street in all of Jerusalem, where they hang up the signs asking, please dress modestly, because, let's face it, it's the last vestige of, honestly, a throwback to what used to be a nice, modest kind of a community. And that kid is growing up. He comes to age 13, he puts on tefillin happily. He's never seen anything else outside of it. He put on tefillin his entire life. 
He had a beautiful family, always did mitzvot, never questioned anything. Should he get any reward? Should he get rewarded for putting on tefillin? Did he have any choice to not put on tefillin? Was he just following what the Milgram experiment explains to us? Is that people just follow? All of this from Yaakov and Esav chasing after the Bet Knesset or the Avodah Zarah. All of this has to be discussed. Rabotai, how in the world do we get to the point where we're not following anymore, rather we're practicing our God-given right for free will to be able to finally earn? Can we blame the people in Nazi Germany? Can we blame the Palestinian child? And can we give reward to the boy growing up in Meisharim? And the answer honestly is, God has given within us a human spark. God has given within us the ability to know the difference between right and wrong, no matter what humanity has spewed or thrown at us. When you read the description to that trailer of fathers and sons, it reads like this. For two years, the documentary follows two children of one of the head jihadists in Syria where the older child never questions and follows his father to match with them. And the younger son cannot bear to see murder around him and just wants to break out and be educated and join the rest of the world. No matter what kind of brainwash the kid is being put through, ultimately God has put within us a spark of humanity that should cry out, This is wrong! It should cry out and say, this cannot be the right path. And for that, God is demanding of us to choose. And with that, God will say, you should have known better. You should have pushed harder. You should have figured it out. If I put you into that kind of a situation, it was something where I gave you the wherewithal to be able to see through all of the darkness and find some kind of light and follow that light towards its beacon, towards the righteousness that is humanity. You should have been able to do that. And if you didn't, then yeah, God is going to hold it against you. Esav is there to challenge us. Esav is there to come after us. And no matter what our initial, what our initial upbringing is, of course the Kidamesh Arim gets reward. Why does he get reward? Because if God gave him that life, then God will give him challenges that are unbelievably hard. So much more difficult in his own fashion and in his own way. He's going to have a Yitzhah that's going to bang away at him and it's going to completely never let him live and hurt him more and more. If the kid is bring up more like a Yaakov, then that means that his Yitzhah Hara is going to be more psychopathic of an Esav. His Yitzhah Hara is going to pound away at him. And the kid is going to have to figure out for himself what art to fill in. Although he's being told to put it on his entire life, he's going to have to figure it out on his own. He's going to have to find some kind of a chidush, some kind of a new reality about the fill in of why he's putting it on. Not just what he's being taught, but rather what he came up with has to be the God honest truth of connecting to God with his tefillin every single day. And that's going to be his reward. If all you do is follow, if all you do is stay within the comfort zone of what it was that you were brought up in and never allow the challenges to propel you to greatness, so then you're going to remain your nature and your nurture. You're going to remain within the same small self that honestly automated you your entire existence. If all you do is follow, so then I shiver at what the reward is on the other side in Olam Haba. I gave tzedakah. Of course you did. It was in your nature. We made you a tzedakah person. We expected more. I put on tefillin every single day. That was in your nurture. We put you into a religious home. Of course you did. We expected more. How did you expect more? What did you expect more? Oh, let's show you. You see that time that you were challenged? 
You see that time that it was really hard and difficult for you to get out of bed for shacharit? You see when it was really difficult when that person made fun of you, embarrassed you in front of everybody, and then you went and lashed out and took revenge and you hurt? All those times that it was difficult that your Esav came after you and you failed. Those were the things that were going to propel you to greatness. Those were the exact details in your life that were meant to be the God to honest propeller to just take us so much higher. And instead, we complain about them. Why did he make it so difficult? Hashem, why did you send us? Hashem, why, why, why? Stop for a minute and appreciate. It's the greatest thing in the world for you. Now, to finish off, this Yitzhar Hara, let's talk about the challenge. Because secretly he's rooting for you. Secretly he's just your trainer. He wants you to be great. He doesn't want you to fall into your comfort of nature and nurture. He doesn't want you to end up just in a life where we've never gone to our just ability to be, to be incredible. I want to tell you how the Yitzhar Hara works. The Yitzhar Hara is the greatest tactician that was ever created. What is a tactician? A tactician, if you've ever um, seen the grandmasters play chess, when you do your move, your first move, he already is about 10 moves ahead of you and you've lost, you just don't know it yet. You just have to move your pieces to exactly where he put you. So uh, the greatest um, explanation for a tactician, um, uh, Deathstroke from, uh, from, from, from JLA, from Justice League of America. So this guy... Um, maybe one of the most fascinating comic book characters ever. Um, so I knew him before, before Arrow came out, before all those other things. I, I, I grew up with this guy. Uh, one of the most brilliant bad guys ever. Because in a certain Justice League comic, Batman is explaining to everybody how to fight against Deathstroke. And he says, he's a tactician. He already figured out how to beat you before you even started. And when they went to go fight against him, I want to explain to you the brilliance. So you have the Justice League of America. You have, you have Batman, the Flash. I, you, you have the Green Arrow. I, you had a couple of really heavy hitters up against one bad guy, Deathstroke. He has a mask over his face. But to quote the Green Arrow, who was the one narrating it, he said, we come up against Deathstroke, and although I can't see it, I'm sure underneath his mask, he's smiling. Now, in the Justice League of America um, book of how you fight, so it's known already that the Flash, who runs really fast, so he's going to run around the bad guy and come up behind him and try to hit him from behind. But because Deathstroke is two steps ahead of him, all Deathstroke does the second he walks out is he takes out his sword and he puts it underneath his arm and waits. So when the Flash runs around to come and grab him, the Flash runs right into his sword. And then the green arrow says, he twists the sword to make sure it sticks. And he falls down. He pulls his sword out. Each and every single Justice League, they come to find him and they can't. Then he goes and he just merely swings his sword at the green arrow. And the green arrow ducks and he says to Deathstroke, you're getting slow. And Deathstroke said, who said I was trying to hit your head? And then he looks and we all know that the green arrow is his arrows, is what he, his power. All he did was he cut off all the feathers from his arrows. <laughs> he can't shoot his arrows anymore. He took him out just with one. Just A tactician knows your every step and he plays you like a fiddle and you fall right into him every single time. Now, the Yitzhar Hara is the greatest tactician that was ever created. He knows us better than we know ourselves. The Yitzhar Hara, Chovat tells us, has a 13-year head start over Yitzhar Tov. You'll get Yitzhar Tov at 13, really. The Yitzhar Hara has 13 years. He knows you. I mean, Metallica told us, sad but true, I'm you. And that's just the way it is. Sad but true, nobody cares. Okay. I'm you. <laughs> that's a, it's, just, it's one of the best songs you can. Once you get it, now it's just in my head. I'm not going to get rid of it for a week. But sad but true. He knows you. What is the only way to ever get out of the grasp of a tactician? You surprise him.
You do something so completely out of whack that even your Yetzer Harad didn't see that one coming. How do you surprise him? Do something crazy. Do something crazy. What is that thing, honestly? Make some kind of a commitment, some kind of a seder, some kind of an everyday consistent thing that you're going to start doing. Whether it's reading a book, learning something, whatever it is, start over there. The one thing the tactician of the Yetzer Hara cannot fight is your incredible power of choosing to be consistent. Because the one thing you weren't brought up with in your nature and your nurture is to be consistent in something of your choosing. Let me explain. You may be consistent in tefillin. That could be. But to be consistent over the next two weeks to grab a book on tefillin and say, I'm going to read 10 pages each day out of this book to figure out the depth the brilliance, the God-inspiring concept of tefillin. And I'm going to know it backwards and forwards. I'm going to delve into the value of this. And I'm not going to get done until I breathe new life into why I put on tefillin every single day. And I'm going to do that every day. That is breaking every last vestige of nature and nurture. And now you are becoming you. Now you are deciding who you need to be. Breaking your nature and nurture of not getting upset. Picking one hour each day, between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock, no matter what the world throws at me, I'm not going to get upset. You're completely getting against your nature and your nurture. No matter what, between 3 and 4, set an alarm. I'm not going to lose it. I'm not going to lose it. If you're a parent at bedtime for the next two weeks, I'm not going to yell at my kid to go to sleep. And when he comes out of bed, I won't yell, go back into bed. Instead, I'm going to smile and say, hey, kiddo. You want mommy to tuck you in again? Okay, let's go back in there. Go against your nature and your nurture for that amount of time, for just a few weeks, and see how amazing you begin to come. You see, because Yetzer HaRa has already planned out, if you say to yourself, for the rest of my life, I'm not going to get angry. He's a tactician. He lets you think that you can do that, but then you get angry. How long does it take? I don't know, a day, a two, a month. doesn't make a difference, but you're going to fall right back into it because you lacked consistency. When you begin to build with consistency, that is exactly the kryptonite against the Yitzhar HaRad that he cannot stand up to. And eventually that one hour of three to four turns into two hours, five hours, ten hours. Your entire existence, you're finally in control instead of being controlled. You can finally now look yourself in the mirror and say, I have free will. I could choose. I'm not being ran by my Yitzhar HaRad. I'm finally in the place where I can prove to myself, I can prove to the world that no matter what, I can choose greatness. Guys, I give us all a biracha. The Mepharshim tell us that to change even one bad characteristic takes a lifetime. I give us all a biracha that we should be able to delve into what it is that we need to be consistent on. Hashem should give us the ability, should give us the power for consistency and as the Hasidic Vart goes, everything is in the hands of heaven except for the fear of heaven. Says the Hasidic rabbis, everything is up to God to decide whether He's going to give it to you when you pray for it. Money, health, children, everything is up to God except for one thing. If you pray for that one thing, He has to give it to you. If you ask God for for the fear of heaven, to know how to connect for real. I give us all a bracha, that we all should be able to have that. Amen. Stop, stop, stop. Okay. So, um, can we just turn this off? You've just experienced another Torah class, brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.